This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Now it's my great honor to introduce our keynote speaker, the former president of Ireland and the nation's first woman president, Mary Robinson. The daughter of two physicians. Yeah, we can clap now. (laughs) But I'd like to tell you just a little bit about her before she comes up. So uh, Mary is the daughter of two physicians and has spent most of her life as a human rights advocate battling poverty, hunger, and inequality. She brings an international perspective to these issues and has witnessed their devastating effects of global hunger firsthand. After serving as president of Ireland from 1990 to 1997, she was appointed the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. In 2002, she founded Realizing Rights, the Ethical Globalization Initiative, which focused on issues like health care, women's leadership, and climate change. When the work of Realizing Rights culminated at the end of 2010, she founded and serves as president of the Mary Robinson Foundation, Climate Justice. This foundation is dedicated to ensuring the needs of our planet's most vulnerable people and countries are part of the climate change solutions and discussion. It's an honor to have you, Mary, join in our conversation. And I want to thank UC Regent Richard Blum, founder of the Blum Center for Developing Economies at UC Berkeley, for helping bring you to us today. Please welcome Mary Robinson. Good morning, and thank you very much for that warm welcome. It's an honor to have been invited to address the Global Fund Systems Forum, Food Systems Forum, and I would like to pay my own tribute to the University of California for hosting this event and also for making it accessible through webcasting. It's a little bit intimidating to see this very large and very expert panel waiting to speak later, and indeed to speak to an audience that contains its own uh, large, diverse number of experts. But this forum is indeed timely, as there is a welcome refocus on food and nutrition in different regions. Five days ago, I attended the Madrid high-level consultation on hunger, food security, and nutrition in the post-2015 development framework, co-hosted by Spain and Colombia. That meeting in Madrid was the culmination of a lot of discussion on one of the 11 themes, food and nutrition security, and the kind of messages. In less than a week, I'll be in Dublin for a conference on hunger, nutrition, climate justice, about which I'll say more later. The G20 and the G8 countries are increasingly aware of the pressing issues and the potential solutions needed for feeding the world's rapidly growing population using a healthy and ecologically sustainable food supply. So again, I warmly commend the University of California for this timely event. 
The list of speakers and participants is impressive. Scientists from a variety of disciplines related to food systems, business leaders, farmers engaged in food production, environmental experts, policymakers. I look forward to hearing their valuable contribution, both from the global and United States perspective. The focus of my speech will be on how we must act now to improve the food and nutrition supply of people in poor countries and communities throughout the world. In particular, I'll speak about the impact that climate change is having now on food and nutrition security. It hardly needs saying, but when it comes to food, we live in a shockingly unequal world. Almost a billion people are undernourished. In real terms, what that means is that hunger is a constant feature of those people's lives. Many will have barely one meal a day, if they're lucky. It's shameful that so many of our fellow human beings, millions of them children, will go to bed hungry today and every day. Meanwhile, wealthy countries have so much food that ever-growing numbers of their populations are overweight. Obesity has become an epidemic in the Western world, and there's the scandal, as we know, of food waste, which needs to be addressed. Yet even in rich countries, there are hungry children and families dependent on food stamps or other social benefits for basic food and nutrition. When people think of hunger, their thoughts probably turn to dramatic examples of poverty-driven malnutrition and starvation, as are found in famine situations. The pictures of um, babies with extended bellies, the flies crawling over their eyes. But as the experts here today know only too well, bad as the extreme famine situations are, chronic hunger is a far more pervasive, insidious phenomenon. As well as the hardship and suffering a lack of food brings, chronic hunger retards growth, lowers resistance to disease, destroys lives. Inequality is at the heart of global food systems. Population growth is increasing that inequality, increasing the gap between those who have more than sufficient to eat and those who are malnourished. Earlier this year, I visited Malawi, a very poor African country that faces many challenges. I was very affected by its population statistics because I identified with the beginning of those statistics. In the 1960s, the population of Malawi was the same as the population at that time of the Republic of Ireland. The Republic of Ireland has grown to about 4.7 million. The population of Malawi has risen to at least 15 million. By 2050, it is projected to reach 50 million. By the end of the century, it will reach 120 million if present trends continue. And Malawi is a small country by African standards. Today, hunger is a lot of an increasing proportion of the population of Malawi, a situation aggravated by extreme weather events, both severe drought and severe flooding in different parts of the country. Can you imagine how many will go hungry in that small country alone in the years ahead if corrective action is not taken? This is a key moment for such questions. Discussions about what will come after the Millennium Development Goals are now gathering pace in the build-up to September's review in the United Nations of the MDGs. Already it's apparent that the report card on progress toward achieving the Millennium Development Goals will reinforce the evidence that we live in an unequal world. Having the number of people living in extreme poverty and the number of people going hungry was the first of the UN's Millennium Development Goals. 
Progress has been made on reducing hunger and extreme poverty, but it has been unequally distributed across, across countries and regions. Of course, it is very welcome that the proportion of people living on $1.25 a day has fallen from 47% in, in 1990 to 24% in 2008, and that trend continues. Millions in India and China in particular have emerged from extreme poverty. But these figures mask a more somber story. The poor regions of Asia and South America, and above all Africa, are still lagging far behind. Globalization has brought many benefits, but it hasn't changed the fact that we live in a society where gross inequalities exist between rich and poor, between powerful and powerless. Power has moved to different actors than in the past, particularly to large international corporations who often own more natural resources than governments. The moral and ethical responsibilities of these large corporations in the unequal world we live in is an issue that I hope we will address in this forum. Inequality means the denial of a whole range of human rights, the right to food, the right to clean water, the right to health, the rights of the child. Inequality also shows itself in another respect, in that the contribution of women and girls continues to be underused and undervalued. The lack of land rights and property rights more broadly, together with early child marriage, reinforce this inequality. Poor countries and peoples face an even greater challenge in the fight against hunger because of the extra burden arising from climate change. There are any number of statistics which prove the extent of the food supply problem and the impact climate change is having. And there are any number of projections as to how much it will worsen if corrective action is, uh, actions aren't taken. Rather than add to the statistics, I'd like to give a few examples from my own experience of how climate change is affecting the people on the ground. In Malawi, I was struck by the huge impact which climate shocks are having on a weak economy almost entirely dependent on agriculture. The president of Malawi, Joyce Banda, is a good friend, and we traveled with her to various sites in the country. And it was really striking to see the impact in one part of extreme floods and in another of extreme drought. It was deeply moving to see how fragile livelihoods are turned upside down in the face of climate change. I had the same feeling when I visited the Horn of Africa 18 months ago at the request of Irish aid agencies. They were worried about um, a, a situation in Malawi, in um, Somalia, which led to the United Nations declaring famine there. There was a history to that. I had gone to Somalia in 1992 as president of Ireland to draw attention to the food crisis there because of uh, fighting warlords. But what never occurred to me in um, uh, 1992 was in the front of my mind in July 2011, and that was that the Horn of Africa had had the eight hottest years in succession ever measured and had increasingly severe drought. And this is the problem that we have to bear in mind. Some of the most active delegations in the climate change negotiations are the small island states, countries such as the Seychelles, the Pacific Island states. And this should come as no surprise, since they face the stark reality that their countries will disappear under the water if corrective action is not taken on climate change. Indeed, it's already happening. My friend Ursula Rakova is moving 1,500 people, her population from the, a small Cataract island to uh, Bougainville in Papua New Guinea. Uh, she talks about negotiating relationships, first of all, with the population in that part of Papua New Guinea, and then 
getting land. And then, with great sadness, she says, but there's nothing I can do about the problem that we are leaving the land of the bones of our ancestors. And there will be a lot of people who will have to leave the land of the bones of their ancestors because of climate change. So what can be done to improve this serious situation? As we aren't succeeding despite decades of trying, we need to understand why. So we should start with a genuine exercise in listening to those we seek to help before we design a new version of the solution to their problems as we see it. For a start, we need to get real about the impact climate change is having on food supplies to developing countries. We must listen to the voices of those at the wrong end of the food supply chain, the people who don't have enough to eat because the chain hasn't reached as far as them and who are having to cope now with the added effects of climate change. A top-down approach to the problem won't be enough. Africa is littered with examples of top-down programs and projects that failed because we didn't listen to those on the ground. The people on the ground are the ones who experience poor food supply and lack of nutrition at first hand. It's to seek answers to these problems that I've become an advocate for climate justice and established the Mary Robinson Foundation Climate Justice. Climate justice is a human rights-based approach to combating climate change. It seeks equitable outcomes to both protect the vulnerable and provide access for all to transition to low-carbon development. Climate justice has a focus on people. It looks at the causes, the impacts, and the solutions to the problem from a human perspective. Climate justice is informed by science, but it communicates and identifies solutions from the perspective of human needs and goals. It seeks equity in the way we respond to climate change so that we combine efforts to avoid dangerous climate change with working to improve the lives of the poor and vulnerable who have yet to reach their development goals. My foundation is proud to be co-hosting the conference in Dublin that I mentioned, which will take place next week, together with the Irish government, which will highlight the linkage between hunger, nutrition and climate justice. It will bring together a diverse audience of some 300 people, connecting policymakers with local people and practitioners who face the realities of rising food prices, failed crops, undernutrition and voicelessness. The conference will place special emphasis on listening to the voices of those most affected by the impact of climate change in developing countries. More than a third of the participants will be grassroots representatives who will share their experiences with high-level political representatives, policymakers, civil society, business and advocacy groups and research institutions. Indeed, Dick Blum, who was mentioned and who was responsible for me coming here, will also attend that conference. I'm excited about the Dublin Conference because I see it as more than producing an outcome document. The hope is that it will inspire new ways of thinking about global development challenges. In particular, it will be a chance to hear from the experiences of local people so that we can root future thematic policy approaches in the lives of people affected by climate change and their efforts to cope. For those who cannot attend, the proceedings will be podcast and the Foundation's website, www.mrfcj.org, will carry detailed information about the event. I must say that in many ways, coming to the climate discussions from a human rights perspective, I find that they're not very encouraging. The basic principles have been agreed in the Climate Convention, equity, 
and the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities recognize that developed countries are more responsible for the causes of climate change than developing countries. Their industrialization, based on the consumption of fossil fuels, put the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that are causing global warming. This means that developed countries should act first and should act urgently to reduce emissions. Yet I get no sense at political level that the need for urgent action to reduce carbon emissions is fully appreciated. At the Durban Conference of the Parties in December 2011, it was agreed that the period up to 2015 would be used to negotiate a new climate agreement for all countries. The last Conference of the Parties, December 2012 in Doha, saw some progress, particularly on the gender dimension of climate change, which I warmly welcome. But work needs to be stepped up if we're to get the necessary consensus on climate change action by the time of the Paris COP in 2015. The warning signs are not being heeded. The latest projections show that unless action is taken, we're heading for a three or four degrees Celsius world by the end of the century, instead of below the two degrees target governments agreed is necessary. That would be some legacy to leave our children and our grandchildren. Action has to be taken to combat climate change. What is needed above all is political leadership. I was encouraged by President Obama's words on climate change during his inaugural speech and since then. Action is what is needed now. I hope that all of you will hold the President to his promises. I said that this forum was timely because the debate about what will come after the Millennium Development Goals is intensifying. Imperfect though the MDGs may have been, they illustrated the power of setting global goals, which enjoyed universal support and a shared purpose. As we looked towards the post-2015 period, we need to redouble our efforts to achieve development which encompasses in equal measure the social, economic and environment dimensions of human well-being. We should build on the lessons learned from the MDGs, what works and what doesn't, to shape a new development agenda. Future development goals should frame development differently from the MDGs. By being inclusive of all states and all peoples within states, the post-2015 development agenda can bring citizens, business and governments together in solidarity to address a shared set of goals. Giving voice, enabling active participation, and ensuring measurement and accountability are all part of making this inclusiveness a reality. These development goals will be different also because they undertake from the outset to address all three pillars of sustainable development, economic, social and environmental. Right now, we have a window of opportunity to shape a development agenda which aims to see everyone having sufficient food to meet their nutritional needs. I believe that the climate justice approach can be integral to achieving that goal. And there are some positive signs that a greater understanding of the nexus between development, food, nutrition and climate justice is being understood better. Last month I participated in a series of meetings at the World Bank. The bank has just published, as many of you will know, a report entitled Turn Down the Heat why a four degrees warmer world must be avoided, which outlines the evidence for the great dangers facing us if we adopt a business-as-usual approach to climate change. It shows the effect of rainfall patterns, changing sea levels, and the increased incidence of extreme weather events. It argues that climate change should be seen as an issue of social justice, and that justice and equity should be at the heart of the discussion on climate change. 
Another development I welcome is the increased interest being shown by the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, which I worked very closely with in the past. The appointment of an independent expert on human rights and the environment is a signal that the human rights dimension is finally being recognised. Professor John Knox has produced his first report to the Human Rights Council, in which he quotes from a study done by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in 2009. That study concluded, and I quote, climate change will pose direct and indirect threats to many rights, including the rights to life and food as a result of malnutrition and extreme weather events, the right to water as a result of melting glaciers and reductions in snow cover, and the right to the highest attainable standard of health, as a result of malnutrition, extreme weather, and an increasing incidence of malaria and other diseases that thrive in warmer weather. Let me just address a brief supportive word to the agricultural and environmental experts here today. Your work has a key role to play in meeting the challenges of securing a better food supply for the poor and vulnerable. In order to address both under- and malnutrition, we need to find ways to produce more food and improve access to a range of nutritious foods. Scientific research is a key tool in human development. It's led to the technologies that change our lives for the better. Work on developing new crop varieties, improving soil fertility, and creating new irrigation technologies is critical, especially in the light of climate change. We also need to recognize the vital role of women in food production. If we don't empower women, we will not have the impact we hope to on nutrition. I'm pleased to serve on the lead group of the United Nations Scaling Up Nutrition Movement, which aims to ensure that every woman and child is adequately nourished. The Sun Movement seeks best practice for scaling up specific nutrition interventions with a proven effectiveness. Engaging governments, civil society, and the private sector in commitments that can be peer-reviewed so that countries are reviewing each other and marking each other's progress, it is hoped to deepen the movement into a global political pressure for sustainable food and nutrition. So I'm very glad and very impressed to see a mix of skills represented here today. The forum literature indicates that you'll be discussing potential solutions for feeding the world's population using a healthy and ecologically sustainable food supply. And let me end then with a positive story from the country I started with, Malawi. On my first day there, I was taken to the ICRASAT, the Malawi Seed Industry Development Program, which focuses on partnerships between farmers, seed traders, and government to improve the availability of and access to improved varieties of legume seeds. I was also shown projects on nutritious, orange-fleshed sweet potatoes. Now, the potato is a very well-known thing in Ireland. This is the first time I'd seen the orange-fleshed sweet potatoes. Very nutritious. And also an agroforestry food security program. This project consisted of four interrelated components which promote smallholder livelihood security. Fertilizer tree systems for food security, fruit tree systems for improved health, nutrition, and income, fodder tree systems for improved livestock and fuel wood tree systems to provide biomass energy for cooking and to reduce the rate of deforestation. 
Developing countries like Malawi need their own research programs with close links to local farmers and traders. And one positive outcome of the forum might be to build even closer links between the expertise available here throughout the uh, length and breadth of California through the reach of the University of California, of, of, of California and the local knowledge and expertise that is available in countries like Malawi. I think if we're going to tackle this problem and do it with equity and with justice, we need the support and the solidarity which will really make a difference. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.